Good evening and welcome. Uh, I'm Curtis Callan. I'm a professor of physics here, and I have the honor of introducing our speaker tonight. Um, David and I, I guess if I added up the collegial years in the same institution over a while, I would fall over backward in a dead faint. Uh, it's, it's a large number. It's, in, it's not in three digits, but it's in the advanced two digits. Uh, and it's all been great fun. Uh, I want to welcome you to the last of a series of three lectures on the search for a theory of fundamental reality, presented by Professor David Gross of the University of California at Santa Barbara. Tonight's lecture is entitled, The Coming Revolutions Towards a New Understanding of Space and Time, and I'm glad to see that everybody is here ready to rumble. Good crowd. Uh, these lectures are sponsored in part by the Farnham Lecture Fund. The Farnham Fund was founded in 1939 by a bequest of George L. Farnham of the class of 1894 in memory of his brother, J. Edward Farnham of the class of 1890. And the quaint part is, for the purpose of providing lectures from time to time by men of prominence not connected with the university. Uh, this description fits here. I'm sure we would say it slightly differently these days, but language is language. Uh, the Farnham Lectures are given twice yearly by world leaders in the arts, humanities, and the sciences, and are chosen by a faculty, the speakers are chosen by a faculty committee. The present lectures are also sponsored, I should say, I'm going to do a little arm twisting here, by the Princeton University Press. Uh, the press publishes scholarly books of all descriptions, uh, but they also publish transcripts of major lectures in the sciences at Princeton. And this series has included such highlights as Albert Einstein's The Meaning of Relativity and Herman Weil's Symmetry. And the press uh, sincerely hopes to add a volume based on these lectures uh, by Professor Gross. This will be a great help to those of you who would like to be able to review the difficult concepts which he has been presenting and which the rather uncomfortable seats have prevented you from taking careful notes on. <laughs> so we can all... As you go out, you can suggest to David that it's really very important for him to write this up. Okay? Uh, David's already been introduced to you at some length before the two previous lectures, so the broad outlines of his career are known to you. Uh, he received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2004 for the discovery in 1973 of asymptotic freedom, uh, a discovery which established the correct theory of the strong interactions. And the story of that was told in his first lecture. As Professor Klebanoff explained yesterday, this was just the opening flourish of a career that has helped make the last three decades a veritable golden age for fundamental physics. Um, rather than going into detail about David's science, I just wanted to say a couple of things that may not have been said. Uh, unlike many great scientists, his impact extends far beyond his scientific discoveries. Uh, he is a great educator, and his record in training PhD students who then went on to remarkable careers of their own uh, is unmatched in recent times, and it's pretty hard to beat historically. Uh, you have all heard of Frank Wilczek, I presume, and Ed Witten. They did their PhDs with David at Princeton, I would add, and they are the prominent tip of a large iceberg. Uh, he's also been tireless in his efforts to advance the quality of life of the community of physics at large. In particular, as director of the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics at UCSB, his energy and imaginative leadership have brought that institution to heights of international influence that his founders did not dare imagine. The passion which you've seen in David's 
uh, public lecturing style, is completely typical of his approach to anything that interests him. And that passion has benefited his students, his colleagues, the community of science, and the institutions that have been fortunate enough to have his services, including Princeton for a longish period. So without further ado, I should pass you on to David himself. Uh, after having told you in the first lecture how the strong interactions were solved by being radically conservative, he's going to tell you tonight, I think, about how the conceptual advances that flowed from that original advance now allow us to think rationally about some ultimate problems in physical science where being radically radical will certainly be called for in order to make progress and understanding. So here's David. Thank you, Kurt, and uh, thank you all for coming back. Some of you, three nights in a row. I'm getting sort of used to this, so I think I'll come back tomorrow, too. <laughs> um, or maybe I'll just go on for a few hours tonight. Uh, by the way, once again, could I ask whoever it is that controls the light? Ah, good. <laughs> Um, so this is the third in these series of lectures on the search for a theory of fundamental reality. For those of you who are here the first time, I told you what I meant by fundamental reality uh, so that I wouldn't be uh, criticized by my colleagues. Uh, and indeed, in the first lecture, I uh, discussed the theory of elementary particles that was arrived at from the end of the last century, uh, with emphasis on the strong force, the nuclear force. Uh, but I discussed the construction and content of the standard model of elementary particle physics. Whereas in the second lecture of yesterday, um, I presented the many open questions that remain that are um, for, came out of our understanding of the standard model and its uh, incompleteness, and I presented speculations, uh, the speculative theory that we've been engaged in for the last 30 years to try to answer some of these questions, with particular emphasis on our uh, expectation that perhaps there's a new deep symmetry of space and time around the corner waiting be, to be discovered next year, perhaps, or in the next few years, at this large accelerator being built at CERN, the LHC and the ILC, which we hope will be built in this country. And then I discussed string theory, which we've been led to in a search to unify all the forces of nature together with gravity, quantum gravity, and I told you about uh, the structure of string theory and some of its accomplishments to date. Today's lecture, uh, I will discuss the current status of string theory, its successes, but mostly its problems, and why this theory suggests that a revolution in our understanding of the nature of space and time is imminent. And uh, if I have time, I'll end with a discussion of whether we will ever achieve a final theory of everything, or a final fundamental theory of reality. 
Uh, so if you remember last time in discussing the accomplishments of string theory, I focused, um, I listed three accomplishments, but focused mostly uh, on the fact that string theory has provided us with a theory of, um, with a theory of quantum gravity. And the successes that are beginning in the use of this theory to answer many of the paradoxical features of gravity in the regime where it's strong and where quantum fluctuations are important. Today I'm going to briefly discuss the, in more detail, the other two accomplishments of string theory, namely uh, the framework that it seems to provide uh, that might allow us to develop a unified theory of all the forces and explain many of the unexplained features of the standard model. Uh, and finally, we'll end on the discussion of the nature of the conceptual revolution that string theory uh, already has achieved and, and will achieve in the future. Certainly the most exciting part and what set off the so-called superstring revolution um, over 20 years ago was the realization that string theory was our best hope to construct a unified theory of the forces together with quantum gravity as I began to explain. But how has that actually proceeded? Uh, I was asked in the question period at the end, some of you left before the questions, a rather um, probing question. Uh, since you defined in the first lecture what you mean by reality as reality is what we can calculate, tell me about string theory. What can you calculate? Well, indeed, I agreed with the questioner that that is the goal and that is our definition of reality, what we can calculate. And within string theory, we indeed hoped hoped and still do to calculate much, but so far haven't really calculated anything. The hopes are based on the fact that, as was evident already 20 years ago, the oscillations of superstrings, the vibrations of this fundamental uh, single object uh, which can encapsulate all the particles we've ever seen or hope to see, uh, that the oscillations of superstings do produce uh, the kinds of particles that, the kinds of elementary constituents of matter that appear in the standard model, the quarks and lepton-like particles that we talked about in the first lecture, and can reproduce naturally uh, all the interactions that appear in the standard model, those forces of electromagnetism weak and strong nuclear forces based on local symmetries of nature and even quantum gravity. So it appears that in a vibrating string you can find when you look at uh, the string at large distances uh, a, uh, all the ingredients <coughs> that we need to reconstruct and explain, perhaps, the standard model. There's nothing in the standard model that doesn't uh, easily emerge from string theory, uh, and even some of the most um, subtle effects 
the subtle characteristics of the standard model appear naturally within the theory. And that was what gave rise to the hopeful expectation that we would soon be able to calculate many of the unknown parameters and pattern of the standard model. Uh, <clears throat> However, it's not an easy task. As I explained in, in great detail, the natural scale of physics, and certainly the natural scale of string theory, is far removed from present-day observation. It's at a very small length scale, the Planck length scale that we discussed, and it's a very high energy scale, far beyond present-day observation. So, whereas we could make quite exquisite and perhaps very precise predictions and calculations about what would go on if we were to carry out experiments at the Planck scale, it's much harder to deduce from that microscopic understanding what happens at a much larger macroscopic level. We understand very well how an individual atom works, but to understand how a large human being works is much harder, as you all know. And even more so in the case of string theory, where the underlying physics is new and unfamiliar. For example, well, so what are the obstacles? Uh, one of the main obstacles is that, as we discovered and I explained early on, uh, string theory requires, taught us, that space has to have more than the observed three dimensions, it appears. Six extra dimensions of space have to be there in some sense in the theory, or maybe seven, as we'll see, it depends on how you look at it. And we do not observe any extra dimensions in the real world around us. So somehow we have to understand what is called the compactification. We have to solve this problem of why we only see three dimensions, whereas the theory seems to be based on the use of higher dimensional spaces. And that's a new kind of problem, which was very hard, and we're still, of course, not at all sure what the answer is. So the answer to the why question, why are there three large dimensions that we can easily see in this room, we still don't know how to answer. And then, as I explained, one of the important ingredients of string theory, in fact, Something that was discovered in string theory is this wonderful new symmetry of nature that we may expect to see soon called supersymmetry. But supersymmetry, as I also explained, is not a feature of the world we see around us. We believe that the state of the world does not manifest directly the symmetry. It's broken. It's not manifest. And we have to understand how that so-called breaking occurs. Why isn't this fundamental symmetry not apparent in the world around us? <clears throat> and uh, we have no direct clues. We don't even have direct clues for the existence of this symmetry in the world, and certainly not to its mode of breaking. And uh, we have to understand that if we're to reproduce the real world. If we could do experiments at very high energies, it wouldn't matter. We could see a symmetric, supersymmetric world and make easy predictions, but we can't. And finally, as I'll discuss, uh, there is one looming problem, which has always been there in theoretical physics, has become a little more severe now, 
and it's called the cosmological constant, which I will explain what that means and why it is such a fundamental problem for us in some of the uh, speculations about how it might be solved in an unpleasantly revolutionary way. So first, what about these extra dimensions? So I'm sure you've all heard that string theorists require there be extra dimensions of space, and to many people that sounds preposterous. But I remind you that this is really an experimental question. Once, especially after um, Einstein's understanding that space-time is not just some kind of inert, fixed uh, coordinate system that is out there and you know, doesn't uh, have any dynamics of its own. Once Einstein explained that space-time is a dynamical physical object, there is the question of, thi of the structure of space-time and even its global structure and even how many dimensions there are becomes a physical question that we have to answer experimentally like all other questions. And it could very well be, as was realized you know, about 90 years ago, or 85 years ago, it could very well be that there are extra dimensions, but they're curled up, much too small to see. So here is an extra dimension of this line, which has one dimension, which if we were to look at it with a very good microscope, we might indeed see that there's an extra circle, an extra way of moving, not just along the line, but around the line. There is a width a circular width around the line, one extra dimension. And that's one way we can easily imagine of hiding extra dimensions. They're just very small. So that at each point in space, if you were of the Planck size, if we were to shrink you by 18, 19 orders of magnitude, you could walk not just in the, this direction or that direction or that direction, but in another direction around in a little circle. And since we can't resolve such small distances, we don't notice this extra dimension. Now, that idea, called, which was developed by Kaluza and then further by Klein, called Kaluza-Klein, compactification or higher dimensional theories, was used long before string theory to try to give a uh, geometrical basis for non-gravitational forces in nature. And in fact, the first successful, you know, the first successful attempt to unify gravity with something else, with electromagnetism, was made by these people in, in the 1920s by hypothesizing the existence of one extra dimension that was compactified, made into a little finite circle, a very small dimension, Kaluza and Klein showed that electromagnetism emerges naturally from gravity in five dimensions. So that you could say, okay, you have the unified theory is simply a five-dimensional four-space for space and one time, dimensional theory of gravity, but if one of the dimensions takes the form of a little circle, then it looks like a three plus one dimensional theory of gravity plus electromagnetism. In the framework of string theory, this idea has become much, much richer. 
Why? We have much more, many more dimensions to play with. We have at least six dimensions we can play with, and those six dimensions have to be invisible, so they have to be compactified, and clearly you can do much more interesting things with six dimensions than with one, and, but you're not allowed to do anything because we have a theory, or at least we have a, some kind of consistent theoretical framework, which is what we call, which is what string theory is. <clears throat> As I'll explain later, I don't think it's yet really a theory, but there are rules, and what dictates the form of this extra dimension, whether it's a line or a circle or something else, will depend on solving equations, actually something like Einstein's equations for the space-time. Einstein says space-time is dynamical. To find out what kinds of space-times are allowed, you have to solve his equations. And the, one of the big advances, again, a little over 20 years ago, was the solution of superstring equations to find six-dimensional spaces on which these strings could be compactified. And here is a picture of a six-dimensional space. Now, it's a little hard to draw six-dimensional spaces, <coughs> on a transparency. So this is a projection, actually, of a um, Calabi-Yau manifold. These are very special kind of spaces, solutions to Einstein's equations, which are allowable, at least in some way of looking for approximate solutions of string theory, a compactifications, curling up of the six extra dimensions. And just like Kaluza and Klein managed to use that circle to deduce electromagnetism from gravity, uh, in string theory, if we start out with string theory in 10 dimensions, where we're required to work when the 10 dimensions are flat, and curl up the six of the dimensions in this beautiful structure, then a lot is determined and emerges from the shape of this internal manifold the nature of the forces, the form of matter, the value of the masses of the quarks and leptons that might emerge. All of these properties that we actually would love to be able to predict and calculate in the case in the standard model are determined by the shape and nature of these hidden dimensions. The study of these hidden dimensions is a fascinating problem in mathematics and in physics, and has been going on now for 25 years, in the hope of finding some very particular solution. Actually, and originally in the hope of finding a unique solution. Somehow, some reason why most solutions would be sick or inconsistent or not allowed by some principle, a unique compactification that would, of course, yield the standard model and allow us to make unique predictions. That didn't turn out to be the case. In fact, the more we study these compactifications uh, and the more sophisticated kind of solution building and compactifications that we have uh, learned about, uh, the more possibilities arise. And the uh, more we've searched for inconsistencies, so to find one unique special solution, the more we seem to realize that they're all equally consistent. And then 
there is the problem of supersymmetry breaking. It is supersymmetry, as I explained, is a marvelously beautiful new symmetry of nature. But it's also an extraordinarily useful symmetry. It allows us to do and control the theory in ways that are truly amazing. And so a lot of our study of string theory is based on starting with the symmetric phase, the symmetric situation when things are simple and we can solve. But in the real world, of course, we have, we know from experiment that supersymmetry is somehow broken, not manifest, and we have to find the way it's broken. And that's harder because once it's broken, things aren't so simple. There are, many, again, many possibilities which reduces our predictive capability enormously. And then finally, there's the issue of the cosmological constant. Remember, the cosmological constant uh, is the thing that Einstein introduced into his equations when he tried to prevent the universe from collapsing. Matter attracts and forces at least he thought, with a solution that he constructed, the first cosmological solution of the universe, that the universe, because of all the matter in it, would collapse. And Einstein thought the universe was static and, universe, and never changing. So he needed something, and there was a natural term that he could include in his equations, which he was later called, or maybe he called it, the cosmological constant. In any case, there's no reason not to put it in, in those equations, and he did put it in to prevent the universe from collapsing. This was, the net effect of this constant was to make the universe expand and balance the contraction due to matter. Later, it was discovered that the universe actually has different solutions that expand, and indeed the universe is expanding, and you don't need this cosmological constant, at least you didn't need it then. So for more than about 80 years, physicists assumed there was no cosmological constant. This turned out to be a problem when quantum mechanics came along because, if you remember, it might be reasonable to say classically that the vacuum, the empty state, has nothing in it, no energy, and the cosmological constant is just a measure of the energy, the momentum, the energy density of the vacuum. Quantum mechanically, you remember that the vacuum is a very violent place. Things are going on. That was the origin of asymptotic freedom. That was the origin of the screening and anti-screening of the forces. The vacuum in quantum mechanics is full of fluctuating fields. It looks like this. This is a picture of the vacuum. This indeed is an accurate lattice numerical picture of what goes on in our vacuum according to quantum chromodynamics. And those fluctuating fields, as you can see, are pretty energetic. So in quantum mechanics, the vacuum has all these fluctuations which give rise to an enormous energy. And when you do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, you estimate that energy in terms, in term of the, in terms of the uh, scale, the natural scales. That's how you do dimensional analysis. And if you remember that number we kept talking about, 10 to the 20, this when taken to some power, gives rise to 
this estimate in electron volts uh, to the energy density of the vacuum. All these fluctuating things that are going on at every moment, every point in the vacuum uh, give rise to an enormous energy density, naively. Well, this, was, this number is much, much too high to be acceptable experimentally. Would, if this was the case, the universe would have just blown up at an incredible expansion. And that's certainly not observed. So physicists assume that for some unknown reason, this number, instead of being this awfully big number, would be zero for no good reason, but why not? Supersymmetry, when it was invented, seemed to offer a solution. It said that there are other kinds of fluctuations, all those super partners. Remember, in supersymmetric theories, every particle has another particle, a super partner. And they turn out to also be fluctuating and canceling exactly the vacuum energy. So if the world was exactly supersymmetric, the vacuum energy would be zero, and everybody was happy with that, except supersymmetry is broken. It's not manifest. And once you take into account it's breaking, well, you get the supersymmetric vacuum, which gives rise to a slightly smaller by 60 orders of magnitude. But that's no good either. And now we've measured, or the astronomers, astrophysicists, presumably tell us with great confidence, as they always do, that uh, they've measured the cosmological constant. And it's getting more and more believable, and it has the value off by 64 orders of magnitude. Now that's pretty bad. And really poses a problem. We, uh, many smart people for many years have been thinking of some way of explaining this discrepancy. And the only way that they thought of is pretty unpleasant. But for string theory, this is a real problem. Before string theory, you had theories which were much less perfect, much more non-unique. You could adjust this number by hand, maybe in a very unnatural fashion. It's pretty hard to adjust a number to 60 decimal, four decimal places to be zero. But you're allowed to do that, not in string theory. Remember, string theory has no adjustable parameters. So when you find a solution, one of these compactified solutions of string theory that reproduces something like the standard model, then you can calculate the cosmological constant. And as far as we can see, the natural scale is going to be around here, and nothing like this. This is a big problem. Now. There is a way out that has been in, discussed recently called the landscape. And it's based on a bunch of ideas, some from string theory and some from cosmology. First of all, it's based on the idea that there are lots and lots of solutions, what look like solutions, to string theory. And it's some, that's sometimes called the landscape. It's as if you have a very complicated, you know, which is really a word that comes from bi biology or chemistry, you have a very complicated uh, landscape like this, and you drop a ball and it falls into one of these, these holes, one of these uh, wells 
and could get stuck there uh, forever, but in quantum mechanics, not forever, but long enough, much longer than the lifetime of the universe. And there are arguments within string theory that there are lots and lots of such approximate solutions, metastable states in string theory. We hoped there was only one, but there seemed to be not one, but 10 to the 500, 10 to the 1,000 such solutions. This is how the argument goes. And then, based on our understanding of cosmology, where it is believed, and there's strong evidence, that after the Big Bang, whatever it is, occurred, the universe expanded rapidly. This inflationary period that took small portions of the universe and blew them up to the size of our current universe, uh, that could have happened anywhere in the then universe so that uh, many universes could have, like ours could have been created by this process of inflation. We might live, therefore, these people argue, in a multiverse. We just see uh, a small portion of all possible universes, and it could very well be that as that process went on and the Big Bang, his expansion took place because of whatever initial conditions happened at the beginning or quantum mechanical fluctuations, different portions of this multiverse ended up in different parts of the landscape. And again, very crudely, people believe that in different parts of the landscape, the solutions of landscape of approximate, approximately stable solutions of string theory, there are lots of different possibilities for many of the parameters of the universe, but most importantly, for the cosmological constant, which might take a whole, any, just about any value from zero or even negative values up to 10 to the 60. And if there are 10 to the 500 universes, and some of these universes, very small portion, one in every 10 to the 100 universes might have the right value that we observe. But then you ask, well, why do we live in one of those? Why not the typical universe which has an enormous cosmological constant? And here people evoke the... So why do we live in universe A and not in universe B, which might be someplace out there in whatever this multiverse is? And people invoke the anthropic principle. That's the argument that we live in universe A, which has a very small value of this cosmological constant, because in universe B, with a very big value, a typical value, in such a universe, the expansion of the universe caused by that cosmological constant would be so rapid that galaxies would not have a time to form, or stars, and we wouldn't be here to ask the question. Since we are here, we obviously live in a universe which can support life. Well, I find this approach <clears throat> to be not only distasteful and dangerous, but premature. Uh, first of all, as I'm going to argue now, although we have lots of ways of describing string theory solutions, or approximate solutions, we don't know what string theory really is, as I'll say 
more in a moment. But also because all of these states are what physicists say are metastable. That means they don't, they're not static. They don't live forever. Eventually you will exit such a state through quantum mechanical effects. That means these states that people talk about, these universes, uh, are things which, whose future we do not know or understand, or, and certainly whose past, which runs into the unknown Big Bang where everything fails, including so far string theory, breaks down. So far, in fact, even though string theory was hoped to give an understanding of the singularities that develop in Einstein's theory when we go back to the Big Bang, it hasn't. We haven't yet understood how string theory can help us, if it can, understand the origin of the universe. So when people discuss these cosmological scenarios, none of them are yet consistent. There's no argument that there couldn't be a unique cosmology, that the constraint that you end up with a cosmology that is totally consistent with an explanation of the origin wouldn't rule out all but a unique solution. People will then tell you, the advocates of the anthropic principle, but isn't it so, wouldn't it be so weird for that solution to have all the strange properties that the world we see has that are seem to be necessary to support life? And that's where we begin to edge towards intelligent design. Also, as I'll explain in a moment, I suspect that the coming revolution in string theory has to do with the nature of space and time. And it might very well be that our criteria for determining the state of the universe with the vacuum uh, might be very different than we've been accustomed to. I must say I still certainly hope but also believe in my gut that Einstein was right. There are, there should be, there are no arbitrary or adjustable parameters. In this landscape world, you lose predictability completely. And many of the parameters, not just the cosmological constant, of the physical world would be determined not by some underlying principle, but rather by historical accident or quantum mechanical accident. You land in a particular vacuum in universe A, the value of the fine structure constant is 1 over 137, and you have a small cosmological constant, so that's where we are, whereas in universe B, the cosmological constant is too big for life to form, and the fine structure constant is 1 over 138. You're not going to be able to predict the fine structure constant. Maybe you could correlate it with a cosmological constant. Einstein said no. Einstein said, nature is constituted so that it is possible to lay down such determined, strong determined laws that within these laws only rationally, completely determined constants occur, not constants that could be changed without completely destroying the theory. That is the strong Einsteinian point of view. It has been a large part of the motivation of those of us who are searching for a fundamental theory of reality. And I will only give that up when forced to. 
And uh, personally, I don't think we're, we're far from being forced to, but many of my colleagues, many of whom I respect very deeply, uh, believe that we are now forced to. If so, that would indeed be a big change in our view of nature. An unfortunate one, perhaps, but we might have to live with it. Well, one of the reasons uh, I suspect that this is a very premature conclusion to come from, especially within the context of string theory, is that people make this saying string theory says, but if you ask them what is string theory, they don't know, and they won't give you an answer. They'll tell you how to calculate approximate solutions, maybe, but they won't tell you what string theory is. And we're still not sure what string theory is. It's like the elephant, the blind men are feeling. We know different aspects of some entity, but we're not sure what that entity is. String theory, in fact, has been a, you know, a saga of 37 years of surprises. It started as this very modest modification of physics, seemingly, where we replace particles, point particles as basic constituents of matter by extended objects, one-dimensional strings. But then, as I explained yesterday, enormous surprises emerged. Gauge forces and gravity emerged from such a description automatically. Supersymmetry emerged as a new symmetry there in string theory, but discovered in string theory, in fact. Space-time was required to be ten-dimensional. Totally surprising. And more recently, higher-dimensional objects, not string-like, but membrane-like, or not just two-dimensional, but three, four, five, six, seven-dimensional objects, D-brains, they're called, turned out to play a fundamental role, perhaps equally fundamental to the extended one-dimensional string-like objects. So string theory really isn't necessarily a theory of strings. And then it turned out in the last 10, 15 years, 10 years, remarkable relations between different ways of looking at string theory, the so-called dualities, dual descriptions of the same theory, whatever the theory is, were discovered. The many faces of string theory. These dualities allow us to describe string theory in many totally different ways. Now, much of this uh, famous plot of the landscape of string theories, the many faces of string theories, will be a little mysterious what these names mean, but 12, 22 years ago when, string, when the super string revolution happened, at that time we thought there were five different kinds of string theories labeled unimaginatively 1, 2A, 2B, and imaginatively the heterotic string, two forms. And we thought they were different theories. We thought we had, well, not a totally unique theory. We had five unique theories, and we had to choose one of them. Uh, and this was the most interesting at the time. Now we realize all of these 
are simply different manifestations, different ways of looking, appropriate for different regimes, different solutions of something, and we don't know what that something is, and we've discovered lots of other new ways of looking at string theory, which we believe are mathematically identical. They, this, they describe this different approximations to the same thing, whatever it is. The question mark. There's something called M-theory, which is a theory in 11 dimensions. Maybe we don't just have 10 dimensions, maybe 11. The theory has another description in 11 dimensions, a kind of string, a theory of gravity in 11 dimensions, which we don't understand so well. And then there's a remarkable duality discovered by um, Juan Maldacena here in Princeton of a representation of string theory in terms of ordinary quantum field theory in four dimensions. And the quantum field theory is just a gauge theory. In fact, it's exactly the theory, the kind of theory we use in the standard model. And that quantum field theory in four dimensions, a highly supersymmetric version of the standard model, turns out to be, we believe strongly, to be totally equivalent to a theory of strings moving in a certain 10-dimensional curved space. So, string theory is equivalent to a field theory. But we said before that string theory is an extension of field theory. But it's equivalent to a field, and a field theory doesn't have quantum gravity. But string theory does in four dimensions is the same as 10. Very bizarre. And the most bizarre of all these dual representations is this representation of string theory, which we believe describes in a different, with different, um, in a way that's most useful for different regimes, this 11-dimensional theory. This is a theory with no space at all a highly supersymmetric theory of spin variables, quantum mechanics with no space, just time. All these are somehow different ways of describing the same thing. But if you ask any string theorist, what is the thing that you have all these different dual ways of describing, they don't know. So, the obvious question is, what's next? What more? of these unbelievable, surprising events are going to happen. I think every string theorist will tell you that if they had a bet, there will be many more surprises of this type. Well, I believe strongly that the surprises, and in fact, the real conceptual revolution that hasn't yet occurred in what, in string theory, which I said might be a like relativity and quantum mechanics, but the revolution here hasn't yet happened, really, is, has to do with the nature of space and time. And to quote some, string, some of my string theory colleagues, some of who are in this room, uh, Ed Witten said famously, space and time may be doomed. Sounds pretty... Uh, ominous, 
Nadi Seiberg, who is seated right here, said, I'm almost certain, Nadi's always almost certain, that space and time are illusions. Illusions? Andy Strominger said, the notion of space-time is clearly something we're going to have to give up. And even a non-string theorist, when talking about time, like Sidney Coleman said, if you ask questions about what happened at very early times, like the beginning of the universe, you know, think about having a theory of the beginning of the universe. You'd have to explain how time began. Well, Sidney says, if you ask questions about what happened at very early times and you compute the answer, the answer is time doesn't mean anything. Time doesn't mean anything? So why is space-time doomed according to uh, the prevailing view of many string theorists? Well, there are many, many reasons for feeling this, but some of them are the following. Some of them have to do with the various things we can do in string theory and some of the things we cannot do. So one of the things we can do in string theory is change the number of dimensions of space by dialing a parameter, by increasing the strength of a force. It was discovered, was indicated on that plot, that a theory, a version of string theory, or a representation of string theory, which indeed approximately for weak for a parameter, g, um, when, when that parameter which appears in the solution is small, it's a theory which approximately describes strings moving in flat space-time. No, the space isn't curved, it's flat ten-dimensional space-time. But when you make this same parameter big, follow the solution, you can argue, we believe correctly, that it's a theory in 11 dimensions. So by changing a parameter continuously, you change the dimensions of the representation of this theory from 10 to 11. That's pretty weird. Further, you can continuously tear the fabric of space. You can start with a solution of string theory, which again describes strings moving in some space-time space, some manifold, as mathematicians call it, where some of the dimensions are curled up in, a very, in, in some way, which is pictured here like a donut with one handle. And then you change the parameters of that solution continuously. You, you get another solution, you change it, you get another solution, all very smoothly going through a region where you don't really have this geometrical interpretation of strings moving in some nice ten-dimensional space. But later on, after changing some more, you get to a description of strings moving in a space with compact, where part of the space has been compactified on a manifold with two handles, on a, on a space with a different topology. You have, in effect, change the topology of space continuously. Well, you're not supposed to do that with topology. Topology is defined as those properties of the space of a manifold of space-time that can't be changed continuously. And if you try to do that in ordinary physics, you run into disaster. But string theory gives us ways of smoothly following this evolution. So, what does that mean? 
How can we think about space in the usual way if the number of dimensions and the topology even of space can be modified continuously? And then there are the things we cannot do in string theory, and one of them is to really operationally probe small distances. Now Heisenberg taught us that it's hard to probe small distances because of the uncertainty principle. If the resolution in space is small, you need a, a large uncertainty in, in the momentum, the velocity of the probe you use. So that's why we go to very high energies, high momentum to use in our particle accelerators to probe short distances. But in string theory, there's a new feature which could be described as the string uncertainty principle. In our microscopes, we use light rays. But light photons are themselves strings. In string theory, everything, in a, in at least in some approximations, are strings. And so we use light rays in a microscope to probe objects of size delta x. And the uncertainty principle told us that in order to get delta x, this precision, delta x to be small, to see short distances, we need very high energy beams of light. That's why we go to these big accelerators. But when you pump energy into a string, it expands. That's a classical effect. Nothing to do with quantum mechanics. It just pump energy in, the string expands. So you're now trying to probe something at high energy with a fat string. And there's an uncertainty then proportional to the energy. This effect is decreased, the quantum uncertainty when you pump in energy. This effect is increased, there's a balance. And as you might expect, it turns out that sort of the minimum distance you can probe in string theory is the ubiquitous Planck length, more or less. So operationally, uh, small distances don't mean anything. You might try to take one of these compactified circles that, of the internal dimensions and squeeze it to zero. Well, that turns out to be difficult because of the remarkable fact that if you try to describe string theory where one of the extra dimensions is the circle of radius r, and you try to make r very small, you find that there's another description of the same theory, which is identical, in which the radius is 1 over r in Planckian units. These two spaces give the same physics. And nat the natural explanation you'd use is the bigger radius. That's what we're used to. So in a sense, again, you can't squeeze r or the size of the circle to anything smaller than the Planck length. Every time in string theory where we try to squeeze things to a point, uh, they somehow push out again, avoiding the singularities, all the singularities so far of, um, that we find in other treatments. So these are some of the reasons we believe that something really has to change about the way we think about space. There's no real meaning to, to arbitrarily short distances. You can change the dimensions. You can change the topology. And space must look very different at short distances.
something like the space-time foam, which people talk about. Some weird structure that is very far removed from our classical perception of a smooth manifold, a smooth texture of space at short distances. But there's a more, even more profound reason why we believe that our notions of space-time must change, and that is the, the growing feeling that space and perhaps time itself are emergent concepts. To some extent, that's because we have many examples now. This example I quoted in four dimensions, so-called ADS-CFT, or the matrix, the quantum mechanical representation of string theory. We have many representations of string theory which are good in certain good for finding solutions in certain approximations in which some or all of space is not fundamental, emerges as a large distance approximation to the theory. We have these descriptions of string theory which we have at least one where there is no space at all. We have a theory in which there's time and there's some objects, some dynamical objects that are have forces and energy, but no space. And yet that description of the theory describes phenomena at large distances which you can also describe as gravity in 10 spatial dimensions. You have a dual description in a theory with no space and one time of phenomena which can also be described in terms of 11-dimensional space-time. Which is why we suspect that if we were to find the fundamental definition, the question mark at the center of that diagram, the elephant, the fundamental definition of string theory, it wouldn't have space as a fundamental concept. And these different descriptions would be approximations useful in certain regimes. But since some of our descriptions don't have space as a fundamental concept, it's very unlikely that the fundamental description would have it either. There are many other examples where some of space emerges as a fundamental and emerges um, at large distances. In all these cases, by the way, gravity also emerges. Gravity is the dynamics of space-time. If space emerges, so does gravity. Now, Einstein taught us, even before general relativity, that space and time are unified into a space-time. And so, if space is emergent in these cases, and perhaps in a fundamental way, then surely space-time should be emergent. And here is the big problem, in my opinion. We have no idea what it might mean to formulate physics without time. We have no good examples of that yet, and really no good idea of how we would formulate 
the principles of physics without time. It's easy to formulate the principles of physics without space. The simplest physical toy models we play with have no space. You have a spin, another spin, you know, there's some kind of energy which depends on the orientation of the spins. You don't need space for that. And that, in fact, is one of the descriptions of string theory. No space at all. But how do you formulate physics without time at all? Well, time already in general relativity is a, is a complicated thing. But doing away with time completely seems unimaginable. Physics is about time, evolution in time. You predict the future given the present. That's what physics is about. How do you formulate the theory without time, without the Hamiltonian that moves you in time? This is, I think, the stumbling block that is preventing us from being able to formulate this core of string theory, what string theory is, because I believe somehow that we would have to have a formulation which didn't involve time as a fundamental concept. And that's really tough. So I like to say that, to paraphrase that, that poem by Democrates that I uh, showed you in the first lecture that summarized the atomic hypothesis so beautifully, where Democrates said that by convention there is color, by convention sweetness, by convention bitterness, but in reality there are atoms in space. Uh, and we're convinced that by convention there is space, and by convention time, but in reality there, and the problem is I can't finish the poem, but one day, one day we'll know how to complete the verse. So string theory has many hopes for the future. A unified theory of all the forces seems to have all the ingredients. New concepts of space and time. And maybe that will help us resolve the puzzles of quantum gravity and especially cosmology. But meanwhile, I'd like to put in a pitch for supporting this highly speculative, difficult field. Meanwhile, there are other benefits from string theory. For example, I told you that string theory has this representation in terms of ordinary gauge theories. Well, that's very useful for gauge theory, the things we use in the standard model. String theory has given us deep insights into gauge theory, which we use in the real physics of the standard model, and remarkably into mathematics, which is of great benefit to our mathematical friends. String theory is uh, discovering, has produced many insights into mathematics, new structures, new methods, ideas that really have uh, benefited geometry and topology greatly. And in fact, in a way that is uh, quite unusual and unprecedented for maybe hundreds of years, mathematicians are now working with string theorists in exploring many new areas of mathematics um, together. String theory also provides us, it, if it hasn't been able to provide us with calculations and precise quantitative predictions, because we don't know what it is yet, with new phenomenological scenarios. The new ideas that come out of string theory naturally and can be used to 
motivate new experimental searches which might or might not find something quite exciting. And finally, string theory uh, can help us maybe go back to its origins, which you recall I told you came from, from the strong interactions, from the strong nuclear force. And I showed you quarks, how when you pull quarks apart, a string develops between them might provide us with a dual, an alternate description of QCD, which would be useful for describing its large-scale structure. So just a word about these different possibilities. One of these new phenomenological scenarios that has become popular in the last few years are, are the speculations that we might not have, might, all the extra dimensions might not just be compactified into little rolled up uh, spaces, but rather we might live on a subspace of the ten-dimensional world, on a brain. In other words, it might be like a fly who is stuck to the wall because of flypaper and thinks that the universe, this room, is only two-dimensional because he can't get off the wall. It is quite possible uh, that, and certainly a uh, possible in string theory, that uh, you could have a situation where all the particles and quanta of force that we are made out of the quarks and leptons and photons and gluons are all stuck to a three-dimensional world, and that's why we only see three dimensions. And we can't see with photons, with light, the other dimensions because the photons are stuck to the wall, to the brain. That's where we are. But there is this extra dimension which goes out into the rest of the room, and that we call the bulk, and it, it could exist. And since it's space, it fluctuates, which means there's gravity there. Gravity is just the dynamics of space. So wherever there's space, there's gravity. You make another space, you make more, another place for gravitons, gravity, to exist. So gravity will escape to the bulk. And to some extent, these theories only differ from the standard model in the, in the gravitational sector which, remember, is such a weak force that it's hard to test. We don't actually know what happens to gravity experimentally below a, uh, about a micron or, or even bigger distances. These, in these scenarios, the extra dimensions actually could be quite large, even in some sense infinite. And we wouldn't notice because we're stuck to the brain, we're stuck to the wall. Well, these speculations were motivated by string theory are, uh, and can, you know, are natural in string theory and give rise to interesting speculations or, if you want, phenomenological scenarios that you can ask your experimental friends to check. And they didn't think about this before, so it's a very useful part of speculative physics. And remarkably, these speculations are consistent with current experiments. And therefore, you can predict that new experiments might find new effects, and they predict very dramatic effects. If you remember, gravity grows rapidly at high energy because of that quadratic dependence on the mass, on the energy. Well, in these theories, there are more dimensions. It grows more rapidly. It could be in these theories that the Planck scale is just around the corner. 
to be discovered at the LHC, it's a very unlikely possibility. I would take bets with anyone for any amount that this will not be seen, but we don't know. They, you could find black holes at the LHC. Could be, can't rule it out. It's certainly good for people to look. And there are also new cosmological scenarios that can be imagined. And there are people here in this very university who play these games with such brains, and so on. Cosmic strings is a new phenomenological scenario that I discussed yesterday in the question session. I will skip it. So let me just end with the application of string theory to QCD, my favorite theory. Remember, mesons look like flux tubes. So that whereas in electrodynamics, the field that would attract the char two charged particles would spread out in space because of that fluctuating vacuum. You remember the picture where the fields were constrained to live along a string-like flux tube. That's the string of QCD, which is why string theory was invented in an attempt to understand such quark-anti-quark -quark composites called mesons. So we really hope to be able to describe that string theory that describes the mesons. And we have learned, in fact, in the last few years that this idea really works for cousins of QCD. Not for the theory itself that describes a nuclear force, but for close cousins which are more symmetric, which have higher supersymmetry. And in fact, we believe, we know in that case, but and believe in general, that this string theory of hadrons should become very simple and maybe even exactly soluble in pencil and paper and not with computers when the number of colors is very big. So one could maybe, and people are working de uh, hard in this direction to solve QCD or first it's close cousin, then QCD, if the number of calls was very big, and then to make corrections. So I typically end this talk with an answer to the question, when will string theory live up to its promises? And I tell the audience that I used to be very uh, pessimistic about a decade ago, and I would argue that the success would only, would only appear in the next millennium, but that today I'm much more optimistic in the last six years. <laughs> but I plan to end this talk on a discussion, a short discussion, since the title of my lectures are, are so pretentious, in search of a fundamental theory of reality, uh, and you see that it's a long search. Can we go on? Can we go on forever, or can we go on, will there be an end? Can we go on forever? Now I'm always asked, I'm often asked, maybe you're just not going to be smart enough to answer, to figure out what is string theory? What is a theory where time isn't fundamental? We may be too dumb to proceed. Well, that's a very interesting question. After all, we know that our cousins, the animals, are too dumb to proceed. I, I haven't not been able to teach my dogs quantum mechanics, much as I've tried. 
But I believe the answer to this question is definitely no, and I have experimental proof. Imagine we do the following experiment. Every year we train a new group of, of humans, and we educate them in physics, and we see how long it takes them to learn our science, which accumulates more and more knowledge, and to get to the frontiers of the field. Well, we actually do carry out this experiment every year at places like Princeton or Santa Barbara. And it is an experimental observation that the best of these young, young uh, scientists get to the frontiers as fast as they ever did, even though, you know, from my point of view, they have to learn a lot more and much more complicated stuff. So I see no sign. I, I would think that if at some point we'd be too dumb to proceed, the experimental evidence would be that, you know, students wouldn't be able to get their PhDs before they're 40 and then 45, and asymptotically it would approach their lifetime. That's not happening, so I think we can... And there's probably a reason for that. After all, Chomsky pointed out that language, in a sense, is infinite. Any child possesses the inherent capability of composing new meaningful sentences that were never uttered before. So language sort of has an infinite capacity. Mathematics is the most advanced form of language. It's not clear that language, mathematics, have any limitations, but we'll know when the experiment begins to fail. Can we, uh, well, we're not going to be able to go on forever in the search for a fundamental theory of reality if we finally construct a final theory, one that satisfies Einstein's criteria and has no more why questions. Well, here I'm, uh, I am agnostic. There's a popular image, well, let me, there's a popular image in, uh, of the exploration of science, scientific exploration of nature, as peeling an onion. The onion represents nature, and we peel away the onion layer by layer in order to get to the core of reality. To my mind, this picture does not capture the true character of knowledge and its pursuit. A more appropriate metaphor for the pursuit of knowledge is that we're immersed in a sea of ignorance. And with the aid of science, we push outward, enlarging the domain of knowledge. Now, I like this picture because, like any model, it's more useful, certainly more useful than the onion picture. It provides a model of knowledge and ignorance that explains one of its most puzzling features. So, this is the way we picture the geometry of knowledge. We are pushing out into a sea of ignorance. Science always works at the frontier of the domain of knowledge and endeavors to push that frontier outwards to increase knowledge, to diminish ignorance. Conceivably, by the way, the domain of knowledge might consist of disconnected regimes, separated by ignorance. And that sometimes happens, but science strives and has been extremely successful in doing so 
to connect such regimes into a connected realm of knowledge. Now, the reason I like this model of the geometry of knowledge is that it explains many things. It explains why, for example, uh, knowledge increases. Now, most of that knowledge is stored in libraries, so we don't have, we individuals don't have to possess it all, but we can always access it. But the model also explains why as this domain of knowledge expands, ignorance also increases. And this is a phenomenon we're all aware of. It's been true in my life continuously. I mean, I know more, but I also am well aware that I'm ignorant of more because ignorance, as I said, that the ignorance that we're aware of is the unknown that is right at the boundary. That's all we can see of the great sea of ignorance. Which is why what I, when I told you in yesterday that the most important product of knowledge is the new ignorance that we can become aware of. So knowledge increases and so does ignorance. But then there's another puzzle in this. If ignorance increases, how do we become wiser? Well, this model also explains why we become wiser. Because wisdom, you know, in the way that social scientists talk about equations, is knowledge divided by ignorance. Don't ask me what the units are. Now, since knowledge increases like the volume of the space, and ignorance only that we're aware of only increases like the surface, you all know for at least simple regular geometrical shapes of this type, the volume increases faster than the area, and wisdom therefore also goes up even though we're more ignorant. And now we come to the question whether we will ever achieve a final theory of everything and have no more why questions to ask. And that, you see, is also a geometrical question, but not a local one like this, but rather a global question about the geometry of nature. It's a question of whether the sea of ignorance is compact. So there are two possibilities. One is that the sea, that the geometry of knowledge is flat, is unbounded and infinite, as people used to think the surface of the earth was. So if the, if the geometry of knowledge is like an infinite plane, like a surface of the earth that goes on forever, well then we'll have work forever and we'll always be able to expand ad infinitum the realm of knowledge and ignorance will be infinite and we will never exhaust it. But it could be that just like in the case of the Earth, the, earth, the, re, the uh, sea of ignorance is compact, like the surface of the globe. And sooner or later, like in the case of the Earth, we'll run out of new continents to explore. This could happen. How would we know? Well, we would know just the same way the explorers of the Earth began to realize that the Earth, well, they realized it before, but you know, they 
we will know when we get to the point where the amount of ignorance begins to decline and finally runs out. Well, I can't figure out how to measure the curvature, but more precisely, if the, the, area, the uh, diameter of this region, as you expand it around the globe, at some point begins to contract rather than to grow. So, and I think that's correct. In fields, in fact, that have ended, in which you've run out of questions, such as the exploration of the surface of the Earth, at some point the amount of ignorance or unknown began to noticeably decline. And that's how we would begin to know that the sea of ignorance is compact and we would have a chance of coming up with a final theory. So far I see no sign of this happening so that ignorance and knowledge might be infinite in extent or not. Who knows? We shall see. So I have a few words to uh, placate my friends and colleagues who do not work at the top or bottom of the reductionist scale. I've been talking about a fundamental theory, a reductionist theory, which in some sense is the underlying core of this reductionist ladder, which ends up with biology, structure of the universe, fluid mechanics. And even if we were to have a theory of everything, it would certainly not imply that all interesting questions or fundamental questions of nature would be answered. We already, of course, possess a fundamental theory, the standard model, which I told you about. It only has a few incalculable parameters that we need, given those, all of chemistry, all of biology emerge. That doesn't mean that it is useful or even helpful or even interesting to use that reductionism to explain chemistry or biology. Most of the, all, almost all the interesting questions are within the realm of chemistry and biology, independent of our quest for a theory of everything. So even if there were a final theory in the reductionist sense, in the sense of a fundamental theory of reality, uh, we can be assured that the myriad of wondrous emergent behavior and the structure of complex systems will remain to be understood and engage us for perhaps another forever. The real danger, I think, to this, the ability to go on forever, is not that we might end or that we might be too dumb, but we may lose the will to go on. We might lose the will as a society, we might run into obstacles of expense and size of the big science we seem to need to answer the most fundamental questions in microscopic science and in the most macroscopic of all sciences, cosmology. And there are signs that we might be approaching a point where uh, the will of societies to support our efforts to go on uh, will be seriously challenged. And here, 
I don't know what the answer is. I, I certainly hope not. And I'll end by quoting a mathematician who expressed that hope as strongly as anyone, David Hilbert, we must know, we will know. And now it's truly the end. Thank you, David, for a provocative evening. Uh, we have time to take a few questions, I think. And the way it will have to work. Nobody can hear you. Oh. So uh, we don't have microphones on, or do we have you microphones? Do. We do have microphones on the floor. So for the first couple of questions, we'll use the floor mics. I'm assuming that we have, well, so we'll call for questions. We have some. There we go. Well, let me ask you, David, since you started this off by saying that the cosmological constant, or rather the actual measurement of the same, was the biggest crisis, and uh, somehow that got lost in the shuffle. <laughs> Do you have a prescription for our uh, emerging from that crisis? No, I don't. Which is why you didn't discuss it further. Well, if I did, I could probably kill most of the people working on the anthropic principle. I mean, I could dissuade them from going in that direction. No, I don't. It's a very hard problem. And, uh, well, Jerry. If reality is what we can compute, and we can't compute the cosmological constant, is the cosmological co uh, constant not real? <laughs> um, re well, reality I define as that is what we can compute, or what we hope to compute. The cosmological constant is certainly something we hope to compute. Now, that was a short statement, and you raised an interesting point. There are aspects of what we would call, so I, I really need a footnote to my definition. There are aspects, indeed, of physical, what we would call physical reality, that we certainly do not believe that we can compute at least usefully, such as, and the advocates of this anthropic arguments use this all the time, the radii of the planet. The uh, evolution of our planetary system at best classically is chaotic and we have no hope of ever calculating the radii of the planets in our solar system. Even though a few centuries ago Kepler believed in a simple geometrical arguments that would enable him to calculate precisely those radii. Um, so because of classical chaos and quantum, inde quantum indeterminism, uh, there certainly are features of what we observe and can measure uh, that we don't believe we can usefully calculate or are even interesting to calculate. And the question is, what? A, there's a deep question of the dividing line between those things that are in that sense incalculable 
or uninteresting and those things that are deeply interesting and calculable. And the anthropic people are trying to move the goalpost all pretty far over and I'm trying to resist. But even, there certainly are things, that's the footnote to that definition, that are in any useful sense or even in principle incalculable but still obviously part of physical reality since we can measure them. David, do you entertain the possibility that string theory is not going to be successful in the end and something else will emerge? Yes, and if I had had more time, I would have I would have gone even a little further. So I didn't put that down because I, 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 I didn't want to get into it. But um, there's something very strange about the situation in string theory, which I've alluded to. After 37 years, we don't know what it is, but people work on it, right? And they do very precise work and they know the rules. And, you know, there's very little wiggle room. It's highly rigid and constrained. And we still don't know what it is the theory is. So, it is possible that something is missing. Now, which is a partial answer to your question. String theory can't be wrong in some sense. Because, if you noticed along the way, I told you that one of our representations of string theory is the standard model, is a close cousin of the standard model. Ordinary field theory that we, not only do we know as a very consistent structure, it's part of nature. And in some sense, everything else in string theory is connected to that part that is part of nature. So in some sense, string theory can't be wrong or even killed. I think if it's wrong, it's wrong in the sense of it being incomplete. And uh, I am beginning to worry, I suspect, that string theory is incomplete. Not in the sense of being wrong in any way, needing modification, but being incomplete in the same way that quantum field theory is incomplete. Quantum field theory, remember, is a framework. To describe reality, the standard model, you need specific dynamics. String theory might be a framework, but then it's not really a framework, it's just one thing. But it might be, it might, when we understand it better, it might be lacking something else in the same way that quantum field theory lacked. You know, you couldn't make predictions just by saying the theory of the world is quantum field theory. That's just a framework you need. Well, the forces are this kind and the matter is this kind. There's something like that that could be missing in string theory. In that sense, it might be incomplete. Question over there.
Um, I was wondering how exactly you would define a dimension. Well, it's very difficult to define the dimension of very small spaces, especially if you can't see them directly. So uh, mathematically, there's a well-defined meaning if you talk about spaces, manifolds. Um, physically, it's only easy when you have very big dimensions. So uh, when I describe the situation where in string theory we can turn a knob, if you want, and change the dimension, um, that is what I really was describing was as you turn the knob, you go through a regime uh, where you don't really have a geometrical description at all. It's another reason why, you know, geometry, why you can suspect that geometry might be modified at very short distances. So to truly discuss geometry, you need big distances. Uh, to give an operational definition of what you mean by dimension in physics. Question down front here. It's actually related to the previous one. Uh, you said that uh, some of the descriptions of the unknown string theory don't have spatial dimensions. But at the same time, you said that at large scale approximation, they become a approximation of, let's say, QCD. Right. What is the meaning of scale in that context? Maybe so it takes some work. I don't understand the mathematics. Yeah, it but. takes some work. You have to, you can, so within these descriptions, well, in, in, in the different cases we know of, there are different answers. Um, but roughly speaking, you describe phenomena, observable phenomena, in a language that from the beginning has no space. And if you want, you reconstruct the space uh, and gravity, for that matter. You do so in a way that uh, is not ultimately satisfying to somebody who is used to space being a smooth manifold with points that are arbitrarily close together. It's kind of a blurred description, but that blurring you know, uh, you don't notice it when you discuss very big objects or big distances. So, but it's a kind of non, there's a certain amount of non-locality or fuzziness in the reconstruction of space from these other um, representations. In the spirit of all these questions about dimensions, um, could you say something about loop gravity and the possibility of dimensions being variable? Uh, I don't usually comment in a polite audience on loop gravity. Um, this is a, an attempt, a different kind of attempt to deal with quantum gravity, one which I don't think has been very successful. Uh, they still haven't managed to derive Newton's equations. Um, it's a very different approach. 
not one to try to construct a unified theory, but just to understand quantum gravity, starting from a very quantum viewpoint. And they have so far been unable to connect that description of gravity with the one that we know and has been tested from Newton to Einstein. I have very technical reasons for believing that the stuff they talk about isn't connected to what we know about gravity, and although it might be mathematically interesting, it's not of any interest to physics, but um, they, you know, that's an opinion. Maybe we'll let the chair of the physics department have the last shot here. He's right behind you. <laughs> Um, coming to your, uh, your last point about the will to go on, uh, this is something that concerns me. I mean, you, you've given good reasons, you know, you've convinced me there's a reason to go on, probably many in the audience, but you're preaching to the choir. What do you tell the congregation who is probably more interested, you know, there are many societal needs, how, how do we, what, what do you tell the congregation, what, what's the practical reason to go on? Well, I'm, they're, they're really, and the, the will to proceed involves, I wasn't really so much talking about um, support, I'm, uh, money only. Well, that's part of it. Uh, I, I was really talking about something more fundamental. So, because so far, for whatever reasons, but partly for the right reasons, societies, governments have been willing to support uh, remarkably the pursuit of knowledge for the sake of knowledge. To be sure, with the experience and expectation, which I think is correct that that has benefits to society and to but also just because we're all interested in these why questions. We do want to understand how the universe came into being and what its history is and what makes up matter and what's at the core of things. So uh, I think people are convinced and in general the support for basic science has been extraordinary over. I'm actually more, and, we'll, and, I, and I trust it will continue. And we go through cycles of difficulties and, but what I'm more worried about is um, extrapolating simply the, the actual physical difficulty, which then translates into resources and dollars, uh, of carrying out these ever and ever bigger experiments to probe to shorter and shorter distances, or conversely, to explore the universe at earlier and earlier times. And um, in the past, you know, it's always looked at any point in time, if we try to imagine doing better by a factor of 10, that's impossible, but somehow experimenters manage to figure out how to do it, and there are all these wonderful technological advances that allow us to proceed. However, I do, th I, I don't know, maybe I'm just losing a bit of faith, but I have a feeling that we're rapidly approaching in particle physics and in cosmology uh, that a kind of, you know, the scales are getting so big, so expensive, 
um, even if the money was there, it's not even clear that the, the, the community of scientists would have the will to, to pursue the, the... Now, I could just be, you know, wrong again, as in the past, and experimenters and will keep on finding the uh, ways to go on, and I hope so. But uh, it's something to worry about a bit, I think. Uh, there is this enormous separation of scales, and we humans are remarkably, on a logarithmic scale, exactly halfway between the Planck scale and the size of the universe, and things at both of those other ends are pretty difficult to get to. So we might run into a... That's the only... That's the biggest danger I see, but hopefully, since you're an experimenter, you'll find some new way of, of making it possible. Well, leaving us with the challenge of somehow breaking the logarithmic barrier. <laughs> I'd like to thank David for a fascinating series of lectures. I know the questions aren't all exhausted, and David is surely not exhausted. He's just <laughs> getting going. So uh, those of you who'd like to come up front and uh, pester. pester him some more, uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to be pestered. And uh, uh, I'd like to thank him once again for a great lecture series.